Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Miranda Donnelly. Last episode, I uncorked your listener questions in a special happy hour episode. Today, we're back to our normal format with a special guest, Karina, who you may know from Instagram and recently started the What About the Mama podcast, which I highly recommend. We talk about her work as an OT in a state hospital supporting people who are connected with the justice system. She talks about what it's like to work in a forensic setting, and we also touch on what OTs from all settings can learn from this practice area. We recorded this episode way back in early May when the pandemic was still very much ramping up. As a result, more people were working from home and many were struggling with slow Wi-Fi signals and still are, and we were no exception. You may notice some minor glitches in the audio, but we're embracing it and moving forward. We'll just call it an artifact of the times. Even with the glitches, I know you'll enjoy hearing from Karina and learning about what she does and what her life looks like as an OT. Then we'll just jump right in while we have decent Wi-Fi. Sure. That sounds great. Before we jump into the good stuff, tell me about what you're drinking today. Today I'm drinking a red blend. It's actually a barrel. It's called Barrel Bond, so they aged it in bourbon whiskey barrels. And it's a red blend. That sounds pretty good. And then at the end, I'll get to hear what you thought of it. And I am drinking today a Gewürztraminer. I think this might be the first Gewürztraminer I've drank on the show. Maybe I did another one. Um, It's called Flora and Stone, and it's from Monterey County, California. So I'll talk about that as well at the end. So before we get into your current practice area and kind of specifically what that looks like, tell us a little bit about how you found OT and what your professional journey has looked like so far. Okay, great. Well, I, um, my undergrad degree, I graduated in 2010 with a degree in biology. And when I graduated with that degree, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I probably changed my mind at least 50 times during undergraduate. That sounds about right. (laughs) So once I graduated, yeah, right. (laughs) Um, and so once I graduated, I ended up, um, moving to a different city a couple hours away from where I was for undergrad. And I just got a regular um, like customer service type of job. And all of my coworkers kind of had those same degrees where they were just kind of like, you know, like there was an English degree or there was a, a um, just kind of like random mod podge of degrees. And so I worked there for a few years before I found OT. And I actually just found OT through um, searching, kind of like looking around and seeing um, what was out there. While I was an undergrad, I worked at a, um, a group home for people with disabilities, and I just loved that, that position, that job. And so I was trying to find something that was related to that. And I found OT. And um, I started uh, graduate school in 2016, and then I graduated in 2018. 
I think that story probably really resonates with a lot of people. It seems like OTs that think people are looking for, but until they know what it is, they, they, they just know they haven't found what they want to do yet. So um, it's a good example of that. When you were in school and you did your field works, did you have exposure to mental health um, from the start or was that something you found after you graduated? It was. Actually, I did my last level twos at the hospital that I work at now. So that's kind of, but while I was in school, I was always kind of drawn towards mental health because I just think that it's so needed. You know, like um, one of my best friends in undergrad, her twin brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia while they were in high school. And I just saw that the hurdles and, you know, the barriers that she had to overcome, you know, she was the primary caregiver for him. And, um, you know, that's kind of what brought me into mental health because it's just something that is so prevalent, you know, it's so prevalent, but it's really just not talked about or not addressed as, as much as I think it needs to be. Yeah. And occupational therapy has such a unique role in mental health as part of the team. And I think when we can actually see the fruits of that, it's pretty incredible. But as you said, it's not always talked about. And part of that, you know, comes into issues of stigma. And, um, you know, when somebody recovers from a stroke, for example, which is a population that I work with, it's very visible. And you can see that they have had a stroke oftentimes, and you can see that they're recovering. And that's something that's very much talked about. Um, but when someone is seeking medical treatment because they were diagnosed with schizophrenia, that looks a little bit different. And sometimes it's not, um, there's no kind of platform to share that in a safe way, right? It's very much physical rehab is very much objective. Like there's things mm-hmm. that you can measure and there's numbers that you can use and mm-hmm. um, whereas mental health, it's, it's a little bit harder to do that. Yeah. You, the hospital you currently work in, um, is it a fully uh, forensic facility or are you working in a mental health hospital that has a forensic unit? I would probably say that about 90, close to 95% of the patients that are in the hospital are forensic. So that means that they're tied to the legal system in some way. Um, There are a couple of patients that have um, been admitted from voluntary or for like guardian, um, but for the most part, it is forensic. All of the patients, well, all of the patients, but one of the ones that I work with are forensic. I think that's really helpful to define what forensic mental health is because the word forensic is often used in popular culture. But I'd like to ask you more about what forensic really means in this setting. And you, you mentioned a little bit, just kind of a tie to the legal system. But what is often sort of like the reason why people are receiving care um, and they're and are tied to the legal system. Are there any myths you can bust for us there? <laughs> Ooh, well, I mean, I work on, so I'm, I'm the OT on two different units. One of them is an all female admissions unit. So there's 28, well, actually just 25 ladies that I work with now. And then um, I work on a long-term male unit where um, it's a little bit of a smaller unit. There's 11 guys that I work with on that unit. Um, But the admissions unit, those um, 
those ladies, so the way that I can best describe it is they um, committed some sort of crime allegedly, and they're just not understanding the legal system or the legal side of things of what they might have done. And so they're sent to this hospital to be restored to competency. And so that means that they get treatment to sort of just get a fair trial. So a lot of those ladies that I see get discharged, um, you know, back to jail and then um, to either like have the court, have, have the trial or um, things like that. And then the other unit that I work on, the males, they, those guys have already been through the, um, you know, the, the whole trial thing and they have got a legal status of either like not guilty due to reason of insanity. Um, and there's just like a couple of other ones. I feel like I'm still learning this whole side of things because it's just, <laughs> I, I still get so confused sometimes, but that's the gist of it. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up being confused about that, but there really is no training in OT school about the legal system, at least within the criminal justice system. We learn about healthcare policy. So what kind of training, aside from your fieldwork training, have you received or sought out to understand these really complex systems? If anything. Sure. I know. I've gotten a lot of, um, I've gotten a lot of support at work to kind of know what's going on with that whole thing. And then also just asking a lot of questions and so like no specific training or any, anything like that, but just being, you know, asking questions if needed. And there's some resources at work that I can pull back on if I do have a question about stuff or um, talking to my colleagues about it too. So. So having that really supportive work environment has kind of been the best tool for you. Yes. I would say so, yeah. Uh, how would you say forensic mental health practice looks similar or different to more, I would say, traditional inpatient adult mental health practice? You know, are there differences? I would definitely say, yeah, there are differences. Um, just because a lot of the time, or, you know, these patients are um, tied to the courts in some way. And so really... The courts are the ones who have the final say about whether or not someone is discharged. So whether or not, um, you know, because there's some patients that I work with that have been there for years and years and years. And, you know, the treatment team at the hospital is saying that they're doing well and they're, they're safe to themselves and they're safe to the community. Um, but because they're tied to the legal system, they're, they're not able to be, you know, discharged because they have the final say of whether or not someone is ready to be discharged because in their mind, they're, they're looking at, um, the safety of the community. And some of these patients have, you know, have committed some pretty, um, you know, just some pretty intense things. And so they have the safety of the community in mind. Um, and so they're the ones that, have, that, that get the final say of whether or not someone's discharged. How does that feel for you and some of the other staff members about kind of your clinical judgment and how it's valued? Because that's pretty distinct from other settings where the therapists and the health team get to really have their voices recognized 
Um, so what does that look like in your setting? Oh, I would say, you know what, that is probably the, one of the hardest parts about work. You know, one of the biggest challenges that I feel like is in this setting because our, um, you know, while we can document and we can advocate for these patients and, um, you know, do all that, it's still, it can still be kind of disheartening, not even kind of, it can be really disheartening to see these patients, you know, you see the progress that they've made and, and then um, they're just still not, they're just still not discharged and that can be really tough. Yeah, especially when they are making progress and there's no immediate re- kind of reward for that or exactly. they're really doing well with their um, community re-entry activities and you're really confident they could do well, but there's no immediate chance for them to apply those skills. Absolutely. And so that long-term unit that I work on with the guys, that unit is more of a community reintegration type of unit. And so before all of this COVID stuff happened, because now all of the passes and all that is on, they're on hold, but um, you know, we had community outings and they, based on their court recommendations, they have to go on, you know, a certain number of passes out in the community. And so that's kind of what we were doing to kind of show their progress that they are able to go out in the community and they are safe and appropriate and all that. Um, so that's a big thing that we work on, on that long, on that um, longer term unit is the community reintegration with passes and stuff like that. So I know that when I was doing my level two field work at an adult inpatient mental health hospital, we were really limited with where we could take our patients. And we did have a handful of people tied to the criminal justice system, but For the most part, they were voluntary admissions. And even then, we were really restricted where we could go, what we could do, and who we could take. So what are the restrictions in your units? And what are some of the extra considerations you have to take to be able to um, successfully take these outings? Okay. Okay, that's a great question. Um, So the patients that are on that longer-term unit, um, there's um, levels that patients have to go through like once they get past that court um, trial they and then they're given a a, a legal status then they have to go through these levels so there's levels one through five and then um, level five is the highest level and then they can be um, conditionally released so depending on the crime and and the felony level some patients will you know, once they're even discharged into bit, like doing the community or the conditionally released thing, they are still subject to the courts. Um, and some of them are to, for life. So they still have to check in. They still have to do these things that abide by the courts, even if they're discharged. Um, and then some of the patients, you know, once they're conditionally released and their legal status is only until like 2022 or whatever, then it just means that they're completely um, you know, they don't, they don't have to check in and do all that kind of thing. And so the patients that I see are, um, or the patients that do go out to the community are already either a level four, which means that they're, um, able to go out into the community, but with, um, supervision or level five, which means that they're able to go out into the community on their own. So there's quite a few patients that do have that level five, 
that um, are able to go out into the community and they're just expected to return back at a certain time. And so the doctor, the, psychi the psychiatrist is the one to write the pass and it's for a certain number of time, a certain number of hours or whatever. And so the patient, you know, goes out on their pass and does their thing. Sometimes it's shopping, sometimes it's um, like going out to eat, sometimes it's going to the library, um, sometimes it's to like AA or um, NA meetings, and then they come back. And so those are the patients that are, um, you know, deemed to be appropriate to go out with OT. So on the female, female admission unit, none of those ladies, um, or there's a couple of them that are able to go out to the community. I don't take them out though. They go out with case manager more, but those ladies are, uh, you know, a lower level. So they're not not, not there yet to be able to go out with OTE. And you said traditionally these women are not being discharged to a long-term unit, but being discharged out of the hospital? Traditionally, yes. Yes. And sometimes they are discharged out, um, you know, some like, and it all depends on the charges. Like if it's a misdemeanor, sometimes they are discharged to a group home or um, Sometimes I see them discharged with family, but typically it's either like a group home or sometimes it's just back to jail. You're, you've mentioned that the length of stay is highly decided by the court system. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's going to be a little different on your long-term unit versus your admissions unit. But could you give us just a sense of what the length of stay looks like for each of those units? I'm sure it varies widely, but kind of an, an average or typical situation if there is such a thing? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, the, it all depends on their, um, you know, alleged, um, you know, alleged crime. So if it's a misdemeanor, then they get if they're a restoration to competency, competency status, then they get, you know, 30 to 60 days to be restored to competency. Um, whereas if it's a felony charge, then they can be, they can get up to a year to be restored to competency. And then sometimes there's some um, ladies that come in who are um, simply a jail hold. So that means that they're there for, for um, 72 hours just to kind of get stabilized essentially and then um, they're taken back to jail. And then there's some patients like on the longer term units, there, there's um, a few guys that I, that I work with that have been incarcerated or not incarcerated, but at, at the hospital, you know, hospital institutionalized for 30 plus years. Wow. So that there's, it really ranges. So 72 hours to decades. It <laughs> does. be in this system. Absolutely. So, uh, like I said, I haven't actually worked in um, specifically mental health OT, although, you know, all of all OT has to do with mental health as well. Sure. But in my experience, it's really easy to build relationships with clients, particularly an outpatient, because you see them more regularly for a longer period of time. And even with inpatient, you know, sometimes people can stay for multiple weeks and you can develop these really good relationships. But what is it like when you're working with someone for multiple years? I mean, it sounds like there might be people there who were there during your field works and that you have worked with your entire career. That's fine. Yes. So what is that like to not just have that out? It's not an outpatient relationship where you see them a few times a day, or I'm sorry, a few times a week or a month, but what is that like to see these folks every day for years and just 
developing that therapeutic use of self and relationship while still keeping boundaries? Sure. I mean, boundaries are a huge, you know, like a huge priority here in the setting. And um, sometimes it can get kind of, you know, to be honest, it can get kind of old to see patients day in and day out. And, and it's kind of tough sometimes to do things that are, um, you know, that show progress, you know, and, you know, that's just one of one of the hardest things about working in this setting and seeing long-term patients is that sort of thing. Um, and so really in that, when, when there's a patient that has been there for years and years and years, you kind of just switch your mindset to, okay, how can I make the quality of life optimal for this, for this patient, for this person? Um, instead of, you know, constantly trying to find things to measure progress on, it's okay, how can I improve their quality of life while they're here? And because, you know, I, you know, there's a couple of guys that I work with that probably, you know, won't be discharged for a while longer, even though they've been here for a long time. The, the chance of having being discharged is, is, you know, kind of low. So quality of life is, is huge. Yeah. So it seems like perhaps you have sort of two different long-term goals for therapy. Is that, is that true? Or maybe it's blended more than that and it's not so black and white, but it sounds like for some people, it's just making the experience of being separated from the community better. And for others, it's to get them back into the community. Um, I would say so. I think those are kind of meshed together because okay. ultimately the ultimate goal for these, for these, um, clients is to be out back into the community although I do think that some of them um you know to be honest that the hospital is the best place for them you know like I I would I would I don't know I think it would be hard to see some of these patients out into the community just for the safety of the community so I guess yeah I guess you're right that some of them are you know just based on the quality of life whereas some of them most of them, I would say, is the goal is to get them out back into the community. So what does a day in your life at work look like? Um, well, you know, it, it varies. So I, I um, because I have a, um, an admissions unit, those interventions and treatments look a lot different than, you know, the longer term unit. So that's one of the things that I love about this job is the variety um, and so, you know, for the admissions unit, we look at, um, you know, we have groups that are more like, how can we integrate coping skills into these ladies' everyday lives? And so we have a meditation group, we have um, what's called a workshop group, which is a craft type of group. Um, we do Zentangle, um, which is kind of like a meditative doodling that could be used as a coping skill. So we really look at um, more so just coping skills and leisure activities and what is something healthy that these ladies can do to fill up their time, um, both in the hospital and once they're discharged. Whereas the longer term units, we focus more on um, IADLs. So we look at uh, money management, we, have, we do cooking, um, you know, medication management and how to establish a healthy routine and 
um, you know, fitness. And fitness is also something that we do with ladies too. Um, yoga, that's kind of for both as well. And, and it's really just um, trying to get all of these things, all these interventions and treatments into, established into the routine. Because that's really important. A few episodes ago, um, I interviewed a student who was actually implementing OT in a county jail system as her project. And she mentioned this idea that to do OT in some of these settings with more restrictions and rules, you really need to be resourceful and that they're even just the supplies you can bring in. You know, I think the classic example would be scissors, you know, and knives, you know, uh, objects that maybe in a cooking group in another setting, you wouldn't think twice about having a client use a knife or scissors. So um, how does that look in your setting? And, um, you know, yeah, what's your experience been with trying to be resourceful with uh, restrictions? Oh, goodness. Yes, there are. I mean, the contraband list (laughs) (laughs) is always being updated. There's always things that are being added to that list. It's pretty wild. These patients, I tell you what, they are creative. They are <laughs> creative with the, you know. But anyway, so yeah, they, um, you know, we have to really be mindful of the scissors. We have to be really mindful of the glue sticks, of the markers. And sometimes if I'm planning something, like, for example, I just planned um, this past Friday a card activity to do. Um, so I wanted these... Um, ladies to make a card for a nursing home here in town. And so it, it was, it turned out to be a lot of prep work for me because I was like, well, I don't really want to bring scissors onto the unit. So I'd have to keep track of these scissors. Um, how can I make this activity doable without them having scissors? So I had to end up cutting all the different shapes and the different things to put on the card. And then, so all I had to keep track of while I was there were a couple of glue sticks and a couple of pens and even then you know i did it so we did the gluing portion first let's do all the gluing and then i took the glue and put it you know put it away and then i would take out the pens there wasn't a whole bunch of things going on so that's something that absolutely um, needs to be taken into consideration safety is absolutely something that is always in the forefront of my mind Um, and then cooking so we use knives and stoves and things like that um, those are for more of the stable patients. So the ones that are on the longer term units that, um, you know, do, you know, exhibit safe and appropriate behavior consistently throughout their days. And so even though there's always that small risk, you know, um, it's just making sure to know where the, where the client is at as best as you can. Um, but for the the admission side because their length of stay is a little bit shorter and they're you know admission so they're in that stabilization phase um I try really hard not to have to bring scissors or uh, things like that where it could you know pose a problem yeah it sounds like you really have to be on it every day you can't have an off day in your job or else it would put the safety of others and yourself at risk that's a high demand. Um. Yeah. And even sometimes, even if like I am on the unit, um, I don't, there's things that I do 
um, you know, like I don't, I don't like to have my back to people or I always like to make sure that I have a good view of where people are at. Um, and not everybody, you know, there's always just a couple of, you know, patients that you have to keep an eye on. So it's not, it's not all the patients are, um, need to be, you know, keep track of. It's not like a scary yeah, you know, it's not like scary by all means, but you do definitely have to be aware and kind of, yeah, I guess just aware of what's going on around you. Well, I think that brings up a good point when you said, you know, it's not, it's not this like super scary job where every moment of your day you're worried about your, you know, own safety. And I'm curious if we can talk a little bit more about that and if there's any misconceptions about working with this population that you hear regularly when you tell people what you do or um, yeah, that, that kind of people might assume that just isn't true. Sure. These people are just people, <laughs> you know what I mean? And sometimes it's easy to, you know, to be honest, sometimes it's easy to forget that and just see their, um, you know, their legal charges, these these scary things that they're, you know, they're accused of doing. Um, and one thing that I really appreciated during my field work is that, you know, I, before I did, um, you know, extensive chart reviews on these people, I, you know, just kind of hung out with them for a little bit, just to kind of get a sense of their personalities and just, you know, them being just regular people. And then I was exposed to like the charges and all of that. So then it, it really helped to not, see that person as being like, oh, you know, that person committed this kind of crime or, and that's, I think that's just like a human thing to do, but it really is important to remember that, um, you know, these people are just people and sometimes there's their, you know, oftentimes it's, it's, they've grown up in situations or they've been placed in environments where I don't even know, I can't even fathom, you know, and so they just have been, exposed to all these things and just have grown up in a different in a di totally different way and so it's just um just really important to remember that they're, they're people and they're not their illness and they're not their, their crime either yeah and we all adapt with the tools that we have and the environments that we have and for many of us those are really positively adaptive and for others there's really not a whole lot of option for that and it can be pretty maladaptive, but I love what you're saying about, you know, just meeting the person first and yes, it's important to know the crime, but that's, you're not tailoring your intervention towards specifically that crime. You're tailoring it towards that person and their occupational needs. And so while that knowledge is important, that idea that you can kind of set that aside and not make it your focus, I feel like probably makes you a really good therapist. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's just, because, you know, people are, are not, like I said, you know, people are not their diagnoses, and they're not their legal charges, they're not their crime, they're people, you know, and they have likes and dislikes and values and, um, you know, things like that, regardless of what, you know, how they got to where they are today. And that's hard, you know, I don't want it to sound like it's easy peasy to do that because I think it's constantly a practice because, you know, again, some of the charges are pretty scary, but 
it's also you know essential for me to be able to to do my job effectively is to just kind of set those aside and look at the person holistically you know i like i said i only did 3 months in that setting so and you've done many years so i just i'm just speaking from from my own tiny bit of experience to get a little bit more um, understanding about kind of your experience. I noticed that with our folks who were tied to the legal system and I did find out about a crime that they had committed or I, you know, when I did my chart review, I found that most of the time, you know, I met the person and it just immediately the crime sort of was forgotten. It's just, I met them and they were often just really kind people who were just going through a really tough time. And it was pretty clear that, um, that crime was not reflective of who they are. And so it was really easy to separate, but I'll be honest. There were a few times where once I knew the crime, there was something that just probably from past experiences of, of me learning about other things, you know, just you know, you bring yourself to therapy as a therapist and you have a past as well. And just hearing about some of the things that had been done just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I had a little bit of a harder time fully separating that um, and not taking that home with me. So what do you do? Um, if that happens to you, what do you do? And um, how do you make sure that you are maintaining your healthiest mental state while also supporting that of others? Mm-hmm. I think the awareness around that is key. So just being aware that, you know, these, these crimes might um, have a bigger impact on me based on my past experiences and my past history. I think that's a big, um, a big important thing to kind of keep, keep, be aware of that, you know, these, these kinds of crimes are the ones that have a bigger impact on me. And so that awareness is really key. And then I also feel like when I kind of remember that I'm not the, how do I say this? I'm not the one that I, um, that needs to judge these people for what they did. You know, it's not my responsibility. It's not my, um, you know, place to even put judgment on these, on these people and their crimes. And once I kind of realized that, that in a way sort of, um, took off like some of that weight off my shoulders. Like I don't have to be the one to kind of, um, I don't know, I guess I don't have to be the one to make judgments about these people and what, they, what they've done. It's not, it's not my place, it's not my responsibility. Um, and so that kind of just, yeah, took the weight off my shoulders. But I definitely think that awareness is the most important thing in that, just being aware of how this is impacting my mental health. And how am I taking this home? You know, how is this, what is this doing? Now, you mentioned that you are the OT for two units. Does that mean you also have OT colleagues that work on other units? And do you feel like you get support or have opportunities that if you don't feel like you can be the best therapist in a certain situation that there's kind of backup? Absolutely. Yes. And so... Um, one of the unique things about this, the hospital that I work at is that it has a huge OT department, um, comparatively speaking. So I work with um, four other OTs, OTRs, and then we have about 12, I think, CODAs. And so absolutely, if there, are, if there is a day where I'm just kind of like, man, this is tough, like I just, 
I feel like my heart's not in it or I'm struggling today or whatever. Um, there are definitely a few colleagues that I could call on that would sort of step in and help me out. Definitely. So that's awesome. I think it's really important, even when people are applying to jobs, to understand what their support looks like from other professions, but also even just within our own profession. I know that some of the folks I know who are working in mental health are sometimes the only OT, and they do have other therapists they work with, like music therapists, rec therapists, art and dance therapists, but maybe they're the only OT, and they feel that burden a lot of times of they someone you know there needs to be an OT group today or someone needs an OT and that has to be me it's the only option and I feel like that's a really good consideration when looking for your job in any setting yeah I definitely agree with that and I think it's also important because some some therapists you know they're they would be um you know based on their personality and their likes and their dislikes they would absolutely love to be just that one OT and so I think it's really important to know what you want in a setting, you know, know what you want in a, in a, in a, in a job. Do you need a lot of support and a lot of, you know, um, assistance or a lot of collaboration with people? Or are you more kind of that person that is able to just do it on their own and be, be totally cool with it? I think it's, both are wonderful, you know, both are absolutely great. It's just being aware of, you know, your needs and what you, what you want. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would recommend people consider or look for during their interviews if they're interested in working in adult mental health, whether it's the green flags that, yes, this is going to be a supportive environment, a good workplace, or maybe the red flags of things to maybe look into a little bit more before accepting a job? You know, I think um, you got to, to be able to work in a setting, you got to know how to advocate for OT um, because a lot of, a lot of the times that's um, a lot of what I do is just constantly advocating for what we do and constantly advocating for our profession because I feel like um, not only the patients, they don't really um, have a clear idea of what we do. Sometimes we're, we're considered like the fun people <laughs> which is great we are you know, in a psychiatric <laughs> hospital yes if you are considered the fun person you are you know you know you're, you're you're great but we do we do work on things you know like in volleyball or in cooking or things like that where we're actually working on things too um so it's easy to kind of get that um, confused to, to sort of have that confusion around what is it exactly our role is. Um, that's pretty typical, I think, for OT as a profession is that confusion. Um, but I do think that in that in that specific setting, it's a lot of you know constant advocacy, and not only for the patients but also for the staff members. Like some of them, different disciplines don't really. Um, have a clear idea of what we do so it's just constantly advocating for our profession and also there's a lot of flexibility in my job so because a lot of our um, interventions are group-based I have a, um, just a couple of groups a day and then I do also the evaluation piece and you know the treatment teams and all of that so it's really up to me to have a schedule and um, there's a lot of 
things to do, but the time is the time is very unstructured. So in order to work in this in this specific setting, you got to know how to do time management and be able to get your work done on time and stay busy and structure your time because a lot of it is unstructured. I think that's definitely a unique feature because oftentimes in maybe more like physical rehab settings, we have patients coming in back to back to back, or you need to see all these patients in an amount of time that seems unreasonable or impossible. And so you kind of have to just get it done, but it sounds like with that flexibility, you're right. There needs to be some element of, of discipline and really good time management to be successful. Yes. And, and then also like, um, you know, cause sometimes, uh, if there's a session that, that does run longer, which, which I'm very much appreciative of. And by the way, I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but, um, because I work for the state, uh, this, I don't bill, we don't have to worry about billing, which is, um, pretty great. And so I can spend my, if there is a patient that needs a little bit more assistance, or a little bit more time or, um, you know, I'm, I'm very much the, the environment supports my therapeutic use of self, which I think is um, really crucial in this setting, you know, being able to use yourself therapeutically and, um, you know, being able to build those therapeutic relationships with the clients. That's really interesting. And um, I definitely see how that is a really um, beneficial feature of working for the state then to actually, you know, it almost kind of goes back to the question I asked you at the beginning of how does it feel when your clinical judgment for discharge isn't necessarily taken into account as much as the court system, but it, it almost sounds like your clinical judgment, you have a little more freedom with that in your day to day because you can really decide that this person needs a little bit more time today um, or this person doesn't necessarily need my support right now. They're kind of in that stage of like applying what we've been doing and, and not feeling the constraints of certain billable hours could really allow your clinical judgment to, to shine. Absolutely. I would agree. And all of that also just kind of goes back to that improvement of quality of life. So I don't feel that pressure, that need to, you know, get that productivity or get those groups and things like that. It's, it's more about the, you know, providing that client centered care. And, um, when you have a little bit more time, you can really kind of focus on that quality of life and what they're, what they need. I think that we could, obviously there's larger policy issues, but I think we could learn some of that in other settings that OTs work. Sure. That's so client centered. Yeah. And it's tough though, you know, because there's some, there's like the productivity standards and the documentation and, you know, all of that where there's, there's pressure to, to fulfill those expectations, but then also to take care of, you know, the client and it's tough. It really is. Yeah. There's a lot to balance when it feels like a lot of the rules set up are not meant to benefit the client. And they yeah. might be, and they really might be. Um, I don't want to be a total downer on it. I'm not in policy, <laughs> and I know they work really hard. So I know there's good even at the policy level, but it doesn't always feel like on the ground it's all in the best interest of the client. So it can be hard to balance that as your ethical and 
you know, personal responsibility as a therapist. And that's why we all became therapists, right? Not because we love policy. Um, unless <laughs> well, maybe there are some people that have, but that's not how I became an OT. So I think it could be hard to balance that. And thankfully, we do have OTs that have taken on the policy role and are advocating for us at every level. And so we're appreciative of them. But I think they are few and far between, which is why we extra need to value them. But absolutely. All that said, it sounds like there's some really sweet parts of your job. And it's clear that you really care about the people you work with and that you um, really see their needs and do everything that you can to support them and be an ally with them when it can probably feel like a lot of people are against them. Can you share a little bit more about just the rewarding parts of your job and what motivates you to keep going back? I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I do for the clients, for any clients that I work with is just kind of trying to figure out, giving them a, like a sense of normalcy, you know, in their everyday, because it's whether or not they've been in and out of the hospital. Um, and a lot of the patients do experience, we do have a high, um, what is it? we do have high readmissions rates but it's really just about like what can I do for this for this person today to give them a sense of normalcy and this all this you know craziness that's going on in their lives and how can I remind them of their worth you know what can I do that's you know of course an occupation-based way to remind them of their worth and that they're people and they're heard and things like that. So I think um, when, you know, it, it's hard because there's, when, when there is something good that happens and there, and we do get good feedback from patients, even sometimes if it's just like, a, oh, thank you for that. Or, oh, um, you know, I really liked that group or, oh, you know, just little positive things. I think those are the ones that I hang on to the most. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. I am making a difference because sometimes it is hard to see that improvement and that carryover. And so I think, um, you know, what motivates me to go back is just those little, little things that patients do. I wonder sometimes if they even realize that they're doing it, but it really means a whole lot to me if they do kind of give me that positive feedback of, yeah, you know, I did have fun in that group today or anything like that. It's just kind of really important to remember that the little things are the, are the things that make the biggest difference. Yeah. And being one of those potentially few people that are reminding them of their worth and their value and treating them in a dignified way. Um, and just the value when they're, you know, maybe cut off from other people in their lives or held in an institution, just knowing that someone actually cares for them and wants yeah. the best for them, I'm sure goes a long way. Yes. And that is also tough because of course, like the people that do cut these, these patients off do have good reason for it. You know, I'm sure that there's something that happened that, so that's kind of hard to, to keep in mind, but also just remembering that, Hey, you know what? I'm not, I'm not the person that has to make that judgment or make that call. I'm just here mm -hmm. to give them some sort of meaning or give them something positive to do, you know? I want to shift just a little bit. Because I noticed, I think this is something you've talked about, actually. I've seen it on your Instagram, um, which we'll get to. But 
I've seen this idea that we are all mental health practitioners, even though it might not be in our job description, but as occupational therapists, that's part of our role. So I'd love if you could share a little bit of advice or support or encouragement for therapists who are not working in a setting that is directly oriented toward mental health and um, mental illness. You know, maybe the people who are working in a physical rehab hospital or outpatient or pediatrics. Um, You know, validating people's feelings goes a long way, I think, to starting that therapeutic relationship and, you know, tapping into their mental health and so you know oftentimes we see clients whether it's in a physical rehab or whether it's here in um, my mental health setting we often see clients at their lowest point you know they're struggling through something that maybe they've never had to experience before and so I think um, you know validating people's feelings really does go a long way and just being like, hey, you know what? Yeah, this sucks. It really does. You know, what you're going through is tough. And just kind of spending that moment to just kind of sympathize with them and validating what they're going through really goes a long way. And then also just, you know, the simple question of how are you doing and really like meaning that also goes a long way too, because that opens a discussion, you know, that gives that gives a client an out of you know, that just starts the conversation of their mental health. Like you're giving them an opportunity. Some of them, you know, will just kind of breeze by that question and be like, oh, I'm fine, I'm good, you know, whatever. But then if there is a client that really needs that, a little bit more of support, that just simple question of how are you doing can really open the door to, to giving them more support, you know, to, to help them deal with what they're going through. Yeah, I also think that when you were when you were talking about that, I was kind of picturing myself in, you know, asking people how they're doing. And I feel like there's, I don't always do it the right way, but I feel like I've noticed two tendencies. One is to be, you know, let's say I go into someone's room and we're going to work on some ADLs. I can be preparing the, the environment for it and moving around and moving chairs because for goodness sakes, every time I go into a room, I feel like it's set up so weirdly and not conducive for our therapy session. So when I'm going in and setting up the environment or getting out supplies, that's one time I could ask. Sure. But, but if I pause and actually look them in the eye and say, how are you today? That I did find there was definitely a change in the type of answer I got. One where I was busy and I wasn't reading their whole verbal and nonverbal presentation and times when I just looked straight at them and asked, and I do feel like I got a very different response. I can't always say I did the latter, but I did notice it was more effective. Just that little pause makes a huge difference, I think. Yeah. I'm also curious if you have any insight into this idea that mental and emotional events or, um, or feelings can really present physically. Um, I think that's something that maybe as physical rehab practitioners, we could really stand to learn more about um, because I think we see it a lot and maybe don't always know how to react. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I definitely think that, you know, um, everything is connected, you know, it's very holistic. 
you know, our emotional, our psychological well-being impacts our physical well-being, you know, and vice versa. And so I think just even, um, you know, again, that awareness piece, being aware of that and um, being aware of that, that, you know, that, okay, this person might be going through a whole lot, you know, psychologically, like what kind of supports do they have at home or how are they how are they really dealing with this? What is their story? What is their life story up to this point? You know, how do they get to where they are today? And then if there is any sort of question or anything like that, you know, just knowing that, um, the, you know, there's appropriate resources to, to go to. Or, and whatnot. Yeah. And I think one way it manifests itself a lot is through like pain that doesn't seem to have a clear origin. And I felt that I, saw that a lot working with populations with um, neurologic injury. And it was really hard to tell at what point it was pain that just the doctors couldn't figure it out, but there was a distinct source of pain maybe related to their injury and they were just not able to identify specifically what it was. You know, as compared to situations where maybe it was sort of this like psychosomatic presentation, but trying to identify Regardless as a therapist, I'm not providing them with medications. Nothing I do is going to be a super easy fix. Um, There were some things that worked quicker than others, but just I think we could probably learn from some of the interventions that you guys are doing in mental health um, as far as like therapeutic. I I use this word carefully, but like therapeutic distraction, but really I think more so I mean by that like engagement and finding things that they really want to do and are meaningful and that can um, sort of take up more of that mental space than, than some of the pain. Sure. Oh, yeah. I think I think you said that really well. I'm, um, and also just remembering that their pain and their experiences are valid, regardless of whether or not you know, um, regardless of whether or not the source of it, it's valid. Like that person is experiencing pain in their mind for for whatever you know. Um, just validating, and but then also finding meaningful things that they can do and engage in to sort of get their mind away from that pain is, is, is important. I think that's huge, the validation piece. And, and also as a therapist, the acceptance that I may not be able to fix this because yeah. a lot of times we can help people with their pain. I'm just using that as an example because I think that's the most common presentation that I've at least been aware of. It's quite possible there's others that I just haven't been in tune with. But there are times where I could set someone up with a TENS unit and there was relief like immediately. And that always felt so wonderful for both of us that I just felt like I'd helped them. They felt heard and helped. But there are other times where I really, no matter what I tried, it it didn't work. And for me, that got a little bit frustrating because I just wanted to help them with their pain. And I think sometimes just being able to acknowledge, hey, I believe you that you're in pain. And I know that there's nothing diagnostic and your doctors keep coming back saying you shouldn't be in pain, but I believe you. And yeah. I'd, like, I'd like to keep trying and let's just keep working together because I know it's real for you. I think your point about validation is huge in acceptance that we might not be able to fix it, but we still can have a role. Yes. And then just setting our judgments aside too, because sometimes it is hard to be like, okay, really? Like you really, you know, as a person, like you're really in pain, but just setting that judgment aside and being aware of that and just setting it aside and just, okay, validating that person's feelings and, um, what they're going through, you know, I think that's really important. Absolutely. So I think that this is just reinforced this idea that 
to be a really good occupational therapist that's really approaching care holistically. We are all mental health practitioners, um, but it's also particularly interesting to hear about what it looks like when people's mental health is the top priority in practice and hearing some of the really effective occupation-based kind of back to our roots, you know, um, how our profession started and that it's still really effective. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Like, even though, you know, even though I do see mental health and that's like my setting and my thing, um, of course, with any mental health is ingrained in any, um, in any set, in any type of setting, whether it's, you know, a sniff or whether it's acute care, whether it's um, pediatrics, even with like the whole parenting, you know, the whole parenting aspect of it. And um, it's definitely ingrained in any, any type of setting that you work in. So Karina, as we start to wrap up here with this really good conversation, I think it's going to be really helpful for folks listening in any setting, really, um, but especially those interested in pursuing a career in mental health. Um, I just am curious, related to OT or not related, what has you really excited right now? I love that question. I, um, so these past few months, I've really looked at using my Instagram and social media as more of a tool for connection. I've been more intentional with that. And um, just because like with this whole uh, coronavirus thing, I feel like people are just craving that more, more of that connection with people. And so I've just been a lot more intentional with my time on Instagram and my use of it. And so I feel like I've, um, I think what has me most um, excited is just the connection piece and using that, um, finding that or shifting my perspective around Instagram and using it more of a intentional, you know, use and connecting with wonderful therapists. Yeah. And I want to just emphasize that because especially during this time, but even before, and I'm sure it'll continue after there's a really cool online OT community. And that's actually how you and I met. You and I met through a social media group that was meeting for happy hour, right? Um, A bunch of people who are active on Instagram um, with OT content just met and that's how we met. So that's, it's such a cool community where you can connect with people from all over. Um, I think it's a way to be really motivated and filled up because our jobs can be draining and just to go and, and interact with other people who have similar experiences and similar challenges and similar rewarding aspects of their job. Um, but just to go and connect and share and advocate and grow. And so I love, I love your account and I love the way that as a whole OT online community, we've been able to really support each other. Yeah. The OT community is wonderful. And to be honest, I was kind of, um, just kind of like tapping my toes into burnout you know what I mean? I've been a therapist for a few years and all of this coronavirus stuff happening. And I definitely, and that's part of the reason also why I chose to kind of um, shift my intentions in social media and just try to get that connection from people. And I really have found a wonderful community there that has helped with that burnout and kind of has given me that more of that zest for this profession that I was experiencing like right after school. You know what I mean? So it is a great, an awesome community. I love yeah. that word, zest. Oh my goodness. I, that is the best way to describe it. 
Yeah, and you know what? It's amazing to see. Like, so I do. I do um, telehealth, like telework from home, and but I don't actually do like um, client sessions. But to see how quickly these therapists have pivoted to this whole telehealth world, and to see like how creative people, some of these people are to like with their interventions. I'm just, it's like mind blowing to me where people come up, like these therapists come up with such amazing and unique and creative um, treatments with what they've got. It's just been really mind blowing. So kudos to those therapists, to all of us for pivoting and so quickly and then still being um, awesome OTs. Yes, the, the demand was high, but in classic OT fashion, um, OTs have really risen to meet the demand, and uh, that just seems like a trend in our profession and our history. <laughs> yeah, we did it again. <laughs> we did it again. I love it. <laughs> Not even the pandemic can stop us. <laughs> yeah, really, nothing. If that's what they thought they could do, it's going to take a lot more oh. than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Karina, um, do you have a book recommendation for our listeners, something you think might be uh, beneficial for us as OTs to read? Anything by Brene Brown. I love her work and I love her, um, you know, concepts of vulnerability and being vulnerable to make connections and all that, that really, um, just with any kind of, any, any setting, I think it's, it would be really beneficial to read anything by her um this one of the books that i just finished reading by her is called braving the wilderness and um so i'd recommend that book and anything by by Brene brown yes she is very empowering um and honest and you can really tell that she lives out her research really well um she actually has a new podcast too so for people i know there's some people that listen that really prefer podcasts or audiobooks over actual books. Oh, one, she has audiobooks and she reads them. So that's like this, such a fun way to um, digest her content. But also she has a new podcast called Unlocking Us. Ooh. So that's a good little, a little resource for her as well. I'll have to check that out for sure because I do love her and her work. And I think she's just wonderful with everything that she's come out with. I just finished a book. Um, I think it's called Where the Crawdads Sing. Yes, I read that too. <laughs> it's really good. It was a good, just kind of like a, um, like a story type of book, you know, like mm-hmm. Brene Brown, like a, a researchy, self-helpy type of book. But um, if any of your listeners are looking for just like a story type of book, that book is really good. Which is so funny because the other guest that brought that book up was Caitlin Clark, with whom I talked about the legal system. So something that really struck me about that book was that this, and I'm going to try not to give away any spoilers, but the main character experienced so much deprivation. Um, she had really no community, very few people she could trust. And oftentimes the people she could trust were not involved in her life for very long. Um, she was betrayed a lot. People didn't understand her for who she was. They, they didn't get to know her and her occupations were very different from what was happening what, what other people were doing, you know, she had very distinct, her occupational profile would have looked like no one else in that town, if we're going to talk in OT terms. Um, and then she finds herself being confronted with the legal system. And it just really struck me how, because of her past and her um, just, yeah, her really complex past and who she was and the occupation she's engaged in really made her a target 
because she didn't fit the mold. And then her interactions with the legal system, in my view, um, it really set her up for failure in a lot of ways, just because she was not part of that community. And yet she was put in front of that community for judgment. And that just really resonated with me. And especially what we've talked about today. Wow, Miranda, you just said it best. (laughs) Can you tell I got very excited about this? (laughs) I 100% absolutely agree with that. Amazing. It's like that, that book would be an awesome book to read while in OT school, you know, and then just to kind of analyze the occupational profile and, you know, analyze the different values and the different roles that, um, you know, the main character plays or fulfills. That's wonderful. You said it best. <laughs> I keep thinking about it. Um, when I had, we had a little book club to talk about it just among some friends that all happened to read it around the same time. And that was my question to them. And I just kind of threw that all out there. And they were all like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. <laughs> but I, I was like, I was so unsatisfied with their reaction. I needed to talk to an OT about it. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Wow. It's perfect. So as we wrap up here, Karina, we at the beginning said what wine we were drinking, but I'd love to hear your review of it. And if it's you, if it's something you think that the rest of us should try. I would think that, yeah, this, um, so I'm not a big fan of sweet wines. You know, I don't really, I'm not really a big fan of like sweet drinks or sweet wines, but this, Me neither. um, it was good. It was bare. It's called barrel bomb and it's a propri- proprietary red blend. Um, and so I really like those wines that are aged in bourbon barrels. I feel like that gives them kind of a, a distinct taste. Um, I used to drink a whole lot of bourbon back in the day, like, um, but now after pregnancy, after having a baby, <laughs> I cannot drink bourbon anymore. But right. I, do still like the, I do still like the wine. It, it tastes pretty good. So you get the, the hint of bourbon without the strength of it. And... Exactly. Yes. No. Yes, exactly. So I would definitely recommend it. Good. I'll have to check it out. That sounds like something I'd really enjoy too. I love a good red blend, especially when there's something a little interesting going on there that makes the flavor a little more complex. Yeah. I am actually drinking another white, which is so funny. I feel like I've been drinking so many more whites on the show than I do typically. Um, Just in my normal life, I'm always going for a dry red. But like I mentioned, this is a Gewürztraminer um, and it's called Flora and Stone. And Something I really did like about this, it's a little sweeter than I would typically prefer, which can be common with the uh, Gewürztraminers. They do have some dry ones, but it usually is labeled as like dry Gewürztraminer. Um, It's a little sweeter, but I will say something that I like about it is that it has pretty noticeable flavors of like apples and apricots. And I know there's other fruits in there, but they're this, I think they're called the stone fruits are really sticking out to me because I am allergic to those when they're raw. So I love them though. So I can never eat an apple or a pear or an apricot or um, a peach. I can't eat those in normal life. So whenever I get the strong flavors in a wine, even if the wine's a little bit sweeter, I, uh, I tend to get really excited about that. So I would definitely recommend this, especially if you like some of those more kind of flowery, Oh, maybe that's why it's called Flora and Stone, because it's stone fruit. Maybe not. I'll have to look into that. But <laughs> um, I think that's why, why this one um, was, was good, despite it being a little bit sweeter. And the reason why I chose this one for our episode um, 
you know, I think I could have chosen something a little bit more stereotypical and overt. You know, 19 Crimes, for example, is one that, you know, my, I saw on the shelf and I thought, oh, we're doing an episode about criminal justice. But I didn't want to do that because I felt like that really feeds into some of the misconceptions. Sure. <laughs> like so I said, Absolutely. Exactly. And so I said, no, we're not doing that one, please. So I chose this one because when it t- goes through the description on the back, you know, on the back of wine labels, it's always interesting to see what people put. And for this one, it really talked about how contrasting the flavors are in this, but also the environment in which it's grown. They said there's a lot of stone. Okay, this is why it's called Flora and Stone, actually. This makes more sense. But it's in this really like rocky area um, where it's just kind of a really unique combination of soil and stone and sunlight. And um, they really identify this as, as the environment that allowed for such complex flavors and such contrast and you wouldn't necessarily expect something like this to come out of that environment supposedly and I just thought that our discussion today about um, kind of just the environment of the hospital and the environments that people are coming from and how much that can influence our own growth and development whether adaptive or maladaptive um, I just thought they're really related this one was very adaptive though (laughs) I love it I love that and you know the reason why I chose a red blend um, is because even though like mental health is what I see day in and day out, because I work in a psych hospital, um, you know, mental kind of like what we talked about before, mental health is blended in all the different settings. Yes. So that's why I chose this red blend. <laughs> I love that. So good. It's so fun when we can find, you know, the relationship between the wine and the topic. And we got it. We got two for you know two for one this time. So I love it. Well, Karina, thank you so much for coming on the show. We will put your Instagram handle in the show notes in case people want to reach out to you. Absolutely. Um, Any questions, anything like that? I'm, I'd be happy to chat with anybody that wants a little bit more information or just to reach out. That's wonderful, and then they can also see a lot of the content that you post that's helpful and encouraging and resourceful for us as therapists. Cheers. Cheers. Karina is such a light, and it was a pleasure talking with her about her work. I especially think her judgment-free perspective of her patients and her focus on providing that sense of normalcy for her patients through occupational engagement are just key to our practice no matter what population we work with. I think it's a message we can't hear too many times, so I'm really grateful she shared that with us today. Back when we recorded this episode, we weren't sure when it would be released, so we did not talk about Karina's newest project, the What About the Mama podcast. So I thought I'd share a little bit about what she's up to because you should definitely check it out. Her podcast aims to help mamas shift their focus from all about the baby to themselves, the mama. So she chats with other mamas and experts on topics ranging from emotional health pelvic health, refinding your style, and so much more. I have to say, I'm not a mama yet, but I have loved listening to her episodes and I'm learning so much. So if you're a mama, know a mama, have a mama, or want to be a mama someday, take a listen and share it with a mama friend. Her website and Instagram handle are in the show notes, as well as her book recommendations and the wines we uncorked. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It's always fun to sit down with you and uncork OT with a glass of wine. Cheers.